0: What The Footy What The Footy What The Footy What The Footy Hi there, it's Paul and you're listening to What The Footy the football business podcast that goes behind the scenes and gives fans, industry experts athletes, aspiring sports professionals and more unrivaled insight into football, business and how the beautiful game is evolving Here is what I have lined up for you today. This episode is a little something different. Last month at Leighton Orient Football Club, What The Footy had our podcast meetup where we had speakers and attendees from Zone 7, Arsenal, Fulham, Everton, Fanatics, Spurs, Man United and so many others like our regular loyal listeners who listen week in, week out to the pod. The main event for the night is what you're about to listen to now. The audience and I were joined by Paul Barber, CEO and Deputy Chairman of Brighton & Hove Albion Football Club, who gave an insight into Brighton's ambition for the season and beyond, how they approach player recruitment and so much more. The audience Q&A part to this live podcast with Paul Barber will be out at a later date. So make sure you follow the pod to be notified. We'll also be doing more meetups and live podcasts. So make sure you subscribe to the mailing list in the description to find out more about how you can attend them in the future. I hope you love it. Not like it. I hope you love it. So if you're locked in and listening, Give the pod a follow and a five star review and tell a friend to tell a friend. Let's go. New samaladis liked me, but I didn't know it was to that Imagine extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school. Nice <laughs> to put in <laughs> arsenal. Powerful people, and I think they need to recognise that. But then also, they need to be represented the right Sporting way. sport in general is nothing without fans.
1: Uh, based on you know one single source of revenue
0: alone, that being the TV. So when in the league. Let's just win this to appease the fans. Welcome to the What The Footy Live, everybody. Ah, Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. More, 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 more. More, more. Now, thank you, everybody. We've got Paul Barber here, CEO, Deputy Chairman at Brighton Football Club. I usually start off the show by asking, what is football to you? A business or a sport and why? But if you did your homework, you'd know before you came to my seminar. This is my seminar, by the way. You'd know that Paul answered that in the first podcast that we did back in the summer. So just sort of starting it off, Paul, um, since we last spoke, a lot has sort of happened in your world. Obviously, you've been nominated uh, for, for a Nobel Congratulations on that front as well. The club's progressing well uh, in sixth position now, two games in hand on, on our local rival Spurs. So um, so all, all the best to that as well. Um but just sort of starting it off when when I last sort of spoke to you, you mentioned about a club's ambition of being a being a top ten team. obviously you finished in the top ten last season you're now currently in sixth position. Just sort of talk to me about what the feeling is within the camp in terms of what can really be achieved this season.
1: Well, first of all there's still a long way to go, so I think being sixth in uh, February is good but not as good as being sixth in may um, so we we're very aware that we've got a lot of work to do. Um, I think the players are are more aware of that than anyone, um, but we've got a good chance, You know, we've got a good squad, we've got a relatively low number of injuries at the moment which is, which is good and the confidence is high and uh, I'm hoping that Lewis takes an opportunity to rotate a lot of Fulham's players on Saturday uh, because they're under a lot of stress and um, they can do with the rest and uh, if you can leave Mitrovic uh, back in West London we'd be delighted.
0: No, that's brilliant. Uh, I think for a lot of people here, and whether that's within football, or not within football, from the sort of the outside looking in, they sort of see Brighton as that sort of model club in terms of how you've been doing things recently over the last few years from a sustainable perspective. Whether that's through the academy or how you've approached recruitment, one of the key words within sort of football that we hear a lot that, that teams like to achieve is alignment. How do you drive alignment within Brighton, and, and how do you ensure that it exists
1: across all the departments? Well, the first thing is having a really clear vision of what we want to be. Um, And we want to be a top 10 uh, Premier League club on a regular basis. Achieving it once is great, but that's not enough for us. And and Mm -hmm. having that very clear vision for that is important. We also want to be a top four women's Super League club. So the whole club has got a very, very clear um, sense of where we're trying to get to. We also work to some very consistent values. And uh, we try and extend those values, not uh, not, not just across the the non-football side of the club, but right the way across the playing side as well. Um, and you know, a lot of football clubs have no dickhead policy. You know, they don't want anybody in their dressing room that's gonna cause problems, and, and we're, we have that. But it's important not to have dickheads anywhere in the club. And you know, from that point of view, you know, our values are quite simple. They're not rocket science. You know, we act with integrity, we try and treat people well, we try and exceed expectations, we, we aim high, um, and ultimately we try and make things special. So even when Alexis McAllister came back, from winning a World Cup, we didn't just want the first team involved in congratulating him, we wanted the whole club. So the women's team, the academy boys, the the, the ladies that work in the restaurant for the players, uh, right the way through to the cleaning staff and the guys that run the car park. They all shared in Alexis's success and he was very delighted to, to have them there and to, to, to be part of the party. So. As soon as that was over, though, it was back to work and back focus on the next Premier League game. And we, try and we try and maintain that work ethos all the way through the club, that work ethic, and also try and keep our feet on the ground. You know, we haven't achieved anything. You know, we've not won a, a trophy in 122 years of, of playing. So you know, to get carried away by finishing ninth once is, is not what we're about.
0: Yeah and just sort of focusing on on, on the point there you mentioned when Alexis returned from the World Cup and and that sort of thing that went viral with the celebration there, uh, in terms of culture and people, in terms of obviously the the club in itself, how you recruit non-playing staff, how you bring players through the door. What does it mean to be a Brighton player or a Brighton member
1: of staff from a sort of
0: culture and sort of DNA perspective?
1: Well, I think, you know, I, I look to players like Adam Lalana and Danny Welbeck, who, who've played at the highest level for some of the biggest clubs in the world. And they immediately sense when they came through our door that there was a distinctive culture, that there was a, a set of values that people live by every day. They bought into those values very early and they help us maintain them. You know they've got great work ethic, they've got great personal values themselves, they help with the younger players, they're respectful to the staff, they're good communicators. Um, and again, I was just saying just now to see to see Adrian up here and, and communicating so articulately is fantastic because a lot of players are not prepared to do that, not prepared to attend events like this or speak so openly. Adam and Danny are two other examples of, of players that would do that, and I think the game needs more people like Adrian like. Uh, those guys to to come up and do these sort of things. Because the game sometimes, I think, is too soundbite-like. You know, we we spend too much time in front of a flash interview board speaking for 90 seconds or 30 seconds, and people don't really get to see the players' real personalities. And in situations like this, you do.
0: No, That's brilliant. And and just sort of moving it on a little bit, when, when I sort of spoke to you, we discussed about succession planning and obviously with a lot of things that have happened with Brighton, you've been able to sort of attract whether whether you wanted it or not attracted a lot of eyeballs from sort of elsewhere in terms of looking at your the success that you've had within the structures and the layers of the club and um and, and, and just sort of building on that from a from a perspective how do you ensure and mitigate against against too much change and almost in terms of foreseeing the change and preparing for the change because from, from the outside looking in for example over the summer you lost uh, Correa, but then we saw the emergence of Estepino, who was able to to break into the first team and perform at high, at high level. He obviously lost Trossard in, in the January transfer window, but we were able to see pre-World Cup a little bit of,
1: of glimpses of Mitomos, but then been able to also progress as well. Yeah, I think it's really important to accept that change is inevitable in a, in a, in a football club of our size. You know, if we do well, if our players do well, they're going to be Viewed upon by other clubs as being hot property, and and therefore we've got to be prepared for them to to have bids on them and, and ultimately for us to sell them. The same is true right the way across the club. If the club is doing well, then our best staff are going to come to the attention of the biggest clubs. And we have a philosophy where that's not such a terrible thing. You know, if we can actually help forward people's careers, whether they're playing or non playing, if we can actually get the right terms for them when the time comes. That's all fine. It also gives us an opportunity to re-energize our own club. You know, three or four changes a year is not a terrible thing. Three or four changes in a squad in a year is not a terrible thing because it can actually provide just that extra bit of impetus, that extra bit of energy that sometimes you need. So we don't see it as a threat. We see it as a compliment, um, but we're also realistic. that We have to plan very carefully for it happening. So the top 20, 25 positions in our club, both non-playing and playing, we've always got a succession plan lined up. And we try and bring in players before we need them. So in the yep. case of Basuma going to Spurs, we had Cashedo ready. In the case of, as you say, Trossard going to Arsenal, we have Matoma ready. And we try and actually have those players in the building, because there's nothing worse than a big headline saying you've just got £62 million for Kukurella. And then you go out and try and buy a left back and everyone says, oh, here come Brighton, let's, uh, let's get that negotiation going. And then suddenly you're paying a lot more than you need to. So where we can, we try and get the players in the building before we sell the players that are going out.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting because one of the things that, that I noticed as well is that, and we spoke about this a little bit, but we did not delve a bit deep into it was uh, your loan system. Because I think what's quite interesting, if you look at the career of Alexis McAllister, Matoma, uh, Casado as well. They actually spent some time out on loan. Yeah. Alexis obviously spent some time out on loan. Obviously, he joined the club, then went on loan uh, in Argentina. Uh, Matoma went on loan to another cl- uh, club that Tony Blue owns in Belgium. And uh, Casado went on loan as well. And then they were able to emerge into the team. Just sort of talk to me about that strategy in terms of breaking those players through through the loan system to to enable them to slot into the first team? Yeah, well,
1: first of all, we we have to work smarter than the biggest clubs in the country. We don't have have the name of a Manchester United or a Liverpool or, or a Tottenham. So we, first of all, have to promise a pathway. And so for the younger players, that pathway might include the opportunity to come to play for a Premier League club, as we are at the moment. But in the meantime, we'll make it clear to them that we'll get them game time outside. And that might mean outside of England. It might mean outside of the Premier League but it will be a pathway that's designed to actually get them accustomed to the Premier League as quickly as we can. So if they're coming from Argentina, it's not just about a move to Brighton, it's about a move to Europe. It's about understanding sort of European culture, custom food, how we live our lives. And, and it can be quite different from, from uh, one continent to another. So if we can do that, In a a country like Belgium where we have a a club that we own where we know how they work, we know their training regimes, we know the way they load players in training, we know the way they play and that is a way of actually giving them an easier stepping stone into our club. It means when they arrive, hopefully they hit the ground running and you'll see a player like Alexis McAllister in the space of three years go from being a lone player at Boca Juniors um, to a World Cup winner. Uh, and a regular in the Premier League that is now attracting interest from not just English Premier League clubs bigger than us but clubs literally across Europe uh, who are much bigger so from that point of view it, it's an important part of the way we bring players into our club. Yeah and, and not only
0: just sort of bringing players through also having coaching staff and developing people as well obviously when Dan Ashworth made the move to, to Newcastle obviously David Ware at the time was assistant technical director and he's now stepped into that role as well just sort of talk to me about what your approach is
1: like to developing people within the organisations to, to, to step into those roles as well. It's the same philosophy really, to, to, to give people that pathway. So when David first joined us, he was our loans manager. So he had a really good insight into the young players that we had coming through, the way we wanted to develop them. Um, in Dan's case, it was a great opportunity for him to move to Newcastle at a time when they were going to be building a new squad for Eddie Howe and with the new owners. So again, we didn't want to stand in Dan's way and we didn't worry too much about Dan leaving as good as he was and as good a guy as he is because we knew we had David uh, waiting in the wings to step up to that role. In David's place, we've now got Gordon Greer, who's a former club captain. So he's doing the job that David used to do. We brought in Mike Cave from Fulham, who's the assistant technical director now. So there's already a succession place, not a succession planning place, not just for David leaving, but for Mike stepping up potentially, and then him leaving. And again, having that depth of talent through the technical staff is really important for continuity and stability.
0: Yeah, and just focusing on the head coach as well, obviously. Um, Graham Potter sort of uh, obviously went to Chelsea uh, during the season and, and you got in Roberto just sort of talk to me about that transition from Graham to to Roberto and what was it about Roberto that you liked and what are the similarities and differences that you see um, in in, in the
1: two managers? Well, first of all, when when Todd Bowley calls you at half past seven on a Tuesday morning, it's never going to be to invite you to breakfast. Um, And that was a that was a call that I wish I hadn't taken, to be honest, um, because Graham was doing a great job and we were really enjoying working with him. And uh, again, going back to what I said earlier, when someone does well and they their profile increases and, and they're on other clubs' radar, you know that call's gonna come sooner and later. And I was just a little bit sleepy that morning, didn't realise what I was letting myself in for when I answered it and then of course realised I'd fallen into Todd's trap. But um, from that point of view, um, we'd, already, we'd already been looking at, at, at Roberto for about two years. We mm. knew what he'd done at Sassuolo, we knew the style of football he played, Uh, We knew that he had achieved a very, very um, consistent uh, finishing position with them in Serie A over two or three seasons. And he was on our radar. Now, sadly, um, the Ukraine war meant that um, his job at Shakhtar had come to an end very, very, very abruptly. Um, And although I wouldn't use the word fortunate or lucky that 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 happened because, of course, the war is terrible. It did mean that our first choice on our succession plan was available when if that war hadn't taken place or isn't taking place then he wouldn't have been available. And at that point you've got to have a plan B and a plan C because then you're probably into the territory of coaches that are already in jobs, they may not want to come, it gets very complicated. So we knew Roberto, we knew his style, he was available, we met him, we were really pleasantly surprised that he'd done a huge amount of work on us, he knew about us, he knew our squad. And I'll never forget the first uh, meeting with him for about three or four hours. He, he went through our entire squad and was able to tell us every single player, left foot, right foot, good at this, not so good at that, want him to do more of that. And we were like, whoa, you know, this, this, is, a, this is a guy who's not only come well prepared to the interview, he'd been watching us for some time. And when that's a, a mutual sort of attraction like that, it, it's, a, it's a bit like that girl you've always fancied and you hope that she fancies you. And all of a sudden you do and, it, and everything's perfect and five months later you're married. It's that sort of, that's that sort of situation. Yeah. Um, I don't want to describe Roberto quite like that, but you know, <coughs> you know what I'm getting at. Um, and, and, you know, he is, a, he is a really, really top class coach and, and he came in and I'd say his English was probably five out of ten by his own admission. It's now nine out of ten. So not only is he kind of got to work with the players intensely, he's also got to grips with his English language lessons every single afternoon that he could. And, you know, again, that's the kind of commitment and work ethic that our our club really relates to. Yeah, and and even just linked to
0: that about the head coach as well, just sort of talk to me and the the audience as well about about the importance of timing and giving the manager time as well because obviously roberto came and i believe it was, was his first couple of games there was a couple of draws and then
1: yeah, five games without a win.
0: five yeah. games without winning and, and similar similar sort of stints as well with graham as well but you guys always stuck with the manager back then believed the process and kind of had that had that alignment through just just sort of talk about the importance of of, of timing and, and, and being there from the sort of support perspective
1: yeah i mean I, th- I think first of all the most important thing is sometimes the results can mask underlying performance and and if you if you miss the underlying performance and just focus on the results, sometimes you can make a hasty decision when it comes to, to removing a manager. So during Graham's time, people forget this last season, we lost six matches in a row. We then played Norwich City at home. They were bottom, cut, cut adrift really in the Premier League at that time. Everyone said this was make or break for game. Graham. If you lose seven in a row, or if you don't beat Norwich at home, you're really going to be under pressure. We drew nil-nil but I think the possession stats were something like 82% possession. We had 30 shots on goal, 19 on target. I mean, you know, God knows how many touches in their box. The underlying performance was one of absolute dominance and we should have won the game. Um, so we didn't win. It was six defeats. Then that nil-nil draw. And then after that, we went on beat Arsenal away, beat Tottenham away, beat Man City at home. You know, the results came, we finished ninth, but it would have been easy for some clubs, perhaps a little bit less confident in their, in their coach than we were after six defeats and a draw at home to Norwich who were bottom, to, to, to push the button, the panic button. Um, but sometimes you've got to be patient. Sometimes you've got to look at, at, at what, what the coach is actually doing, what he said he's going to do, how that's shaping up, and be patient. In Roberto's case, five games without a win and then along come Chelsea and you just know what's going to happen, right? You just know that when Graham comes back to the Amex, this is going to be the moment that Roberto sort of pushes all the right buttons and the players were up for it, the crowd were up for it, we win 4-1 and then suddenly, you know, the rest the rest is history because the fans forget those first five games, the media forget them but they also forget in his first game he was 2-0 up at Anfield inside 19 minutes and we were literally playing Liverpool off the park and should have won that game and ended up drawing 3-3 so You know football is a funny game right it it, it can sometimes you know tell you things that are quite sort of you know deceitful in a way you look at results but it doesn't necessarily correspond to the way the team is playing or how the manager is performing.
0: That's that's super useful and and speaking about Todd Bowley uh, I think amortization must be one of the most googled words in the last (laughs) in the last sort of couple of weeks and um, obviously we've seen sort of longer term contracts coming into play at Chelsea there and, and UEFA have even come in and said that They've now put a limit on, on five years in terms of the period in which clubs can amortise players. Um, it's quite a popular, popular sort of methodology. those longer term contracts in, in baseball and obviously Todd owns the, the Dodgers there. Is it something that's this new or that's novel? Is it something that clubs like yourself have looked at in the past in terms of
1: finding ways and using, using creative accounting to try and really, really look at finance? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, I'd say Todd's clearly smarter than me. His bank balance is certainly bigger, so he must be smarter than me. Um, Listen, I, I think every club has its own way of accounting and different sort of methodologies when it comes to player contracts. I think one of the problems with eight-year contracts is Adrian still in room years. I mean, eight-year contract for a player. If you're if you're three years into that contract and your form dips, and you know you've got five more years coming, whatever happens. If you're super professional, you're going to want your form to be back up and you're going to want to sort of keep pushing and and getting back in the team if you're out of it. But for some players, and we're all different, that may not necessarily be the same intensive. And you're sitting there thinking, Jesus, I don't really have to work that hard. I've got five more years of this contract to go. So for me, eight years feels like a long time. Um, From a business perspective, a lot can happen in eight years. A, a, A lot. Injuries, lack of form, as I said bids that come in, Um, the player wants to leave, his wife doesn't settle, the kids hate their school. What do you do in that situation if the player's on a contract of eight years with salaries up here, he's formed dips, and then your opportunities to move him out are very, very limited. So for me, it doesn't provide the kind of flexibility that I want in my club, Um, but I understand why Todd's done it. He's buying young, expensive players, they're on big contracts, he wants to stretch the cost of them over the longest possible time keep himself within FFP rules and you know, hopefully at some point in the future they'll offload the players they don't want, balance their books a different way and all of the players they've bought will work out. Well, in my experience, that rarely happens. Um, I'd love every player we've ever bought to work out, but they don't. For all the reasons that we know. So it's an interesting strategy, it's not one that we would pursue.
0: Yeah and one of the interesting things that, that UEFA are really looking at is multi-club ownership mm. and sort of concerns around that as we sort of know with multi-club ownership there's a lot of economies of skills that you can kind of kind of take from that whether that's through loan obviously Red Bull sort of led the way uh, in terms of that sort of model. Daniel Levy recently obviously mentioned about the difficulties that, that exist in terms of competing in the Premier League we listened to, 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 to Lewis at Fulham there who were obviously doing very well in the league this season and since obviously you've come up into the leagues and been promoted, we've seen new investors come into the league, whether that's consortiums, whether that's uh, different types of ownership models. How, how easy and how difficult has it been for you in terms of being able to, to, to navigate through that, in terms
1: of being able to compete with those teams? It's hard. I mean, you know, our revenues this year will probably be around 160, 170 million. Manchester United, a billion. You know, just on that basic sort of comparison you know you can tell the difference in scale of the clubs we're never going to be the sort of club that can afford to pay the top wages so we're never going to attract the very top players we have to buy young we have to be prepared to develop them we then try and hold on to them as long as we can and then obviously we release them into that opportunity that Cucurella's had that at some point Casedo will have at some point McAllister will have at some point Matoma will probably have as well that's our model and that's how we can compete. We have to fish in different ponds to those guys. We have to be prepared to take a few risks. It's Ecuador more often than Argentina. It's Paraguay more often than Brazil. Um, it might be Belgium more often than Spain in terms of where we fish. And that's, we, that's what we accept. We don't have a problem with that. Um, we think we can be a bit smarter because of the way we work and the way we recruit but it doesn't mean to say we're guaranteed to get everything right. And we've made some mistakes. And and again, I think that's the other thing is that when you're fishing in these ponds, sometimes the fish look like fish, but sometimes they're not. Um, and you know, the fish are, are not what you thought they were. And, and that's, again the way the way sometimes football works and in that situation we try and be respectful to the player that hasn't worked out we want their career to progress so we look for them to get a, an exit into a, a country where they're more comfortable and where they can rebuild their confidence in their careers and that's also important because we don't want to put off players coming to us we want to treat them well on the way out as well as on the way in
0: that's, that's super useful just uh, the just, uh two more questions for myself. Um, I think one of the the interesting things you sort of mentioned there about your model that we've seen is that this, this kind of stick into the valuation and the valuation has to be met, just, just sort of talk to me about how you sort of go about that process in terms of, in terms of, in terms of that, that being
1: in play. Well, when Arsenal come calling, it's easy. I grew up a Spurs fan, um, (laughs) so it's tough for those guys. And, um, they don't like making that call to me, but, um, but yeah, it, it, I think sometimes because, again, of the, of the size of club that we are, we have to get full value for, for our players. When we've, when we've taken the risk in the first place, when we've spent maybe two, three seasons developing, developing them, coaching them, bringing them to the level that they are, we, we need to make sure we get our, our return. And I think sometimes the bigger clubs feel that they can bully a little bit or because the player wants to go to wh- whichever the big club is, it's gonna be easy. Um, but it's my job on behalf of the owner not to make it easy and to get that value. And sometimes that means saying no. And that's hard. And, and Adrian will know if you wanna make, if, you, if you're a player and you wanna move and the club says no, but you're under contract, you've got two choices. You, you can either throw your toys out the pram, uh, but then when the window closes, you've gotta knuckle down because what are you gonna do? Or you accept and respect the club's position and you maintain your professionalism and hope at some point in the future when it's right for the club, as well as right for you, then you get that opportunity. And what we explain to players is it has to be right for everybody. It has to be right for us, has to be right for the player, the money has to be right, and the club that he's going to have to approach us in the right way at the right time. If one or other of those things doesn't happen, the deal's not going to happen i don't care how good the agent is he can burn my house down he can do whatever he needs to do but if we don't want the player to go he won't go um it will go on it'll go on our terms when we're ready but at the same time we'll do that in a respectful way
0: now that's useful the question i always end the the episodes with is what the footy needs to change or happen within your space
1: <laughs> well the talk, the talk earlier about the number of games that, that, that we're playing is an interesting one because it's a bit of a circular debate. You know, wages keep going up. In order for us to sustain those wages, we need to play more games. When we play more games, the TV companies take more games, the TV revenues go up. The players want a bigger slice of that, understandably, because they are the talent. So it is a bit of a vicious circle. And then, you know, the question I really wanted, I really wanted to be asked was, you know, would the players take a 25% cut of wages for 25% less games? P- probably not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you didn't even answer. You just, started, you just started laughing hysterically over there.
1: So, so that's the problem, right? And, and I, don't blame, I don't blame the guys. You know, We've got yeah. some really talented athletes who have a really short career and they deserve every penny that they get as far as I'm concerned because they provide great entertainment for so many people, not just in this country, across the world. But there's a price within that and the price has to be met by the employer, which is the club. And the club obviously has to be part of this sort of economic system that doesn't just sustain us at the top level, but helps us feed the bottom levels as well. So this is a really complex argument. It's not just about the sports science, which is a really important part of it. It's also about the economics and that's when it gets very, very complicated.
0: Now, Paul, thank you very much for coming on the What The Footy Podcast, appreciate it. (laughs) Thank you for listening, I hope you loved it, and if you did, give the pod a follow and a 5 star review and tell a friend to tell a friend. See you in a fortnight for the next episode, let's go! What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? New knew Sam Allardyce liked me, but I didn't know it was to that Imagine extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school, now <laughs> to put in Arsenal. Awesome. Powerful people, and I think they need to recognise that, but then also... They need to be represented the right way. sport in general is nothing without fans.
1: Uh, based on you know one single source
0: of revenue alone, that being the TV. Let's just win this to appease the fan.